Folks, if you owe back taxes, fair warning, you're not going to like this. The IRS is mailing millions of pay-up letters. Millions, I say. Then it's up to the 20,000 new IRS enforcement agents to find you. Why the IRS targets you and not millionaires? Well, because millionaires have tax lawyers. You don't, you'll pay up. Plus interest and penalties. You need Tax Network USA, and you need them now. Tax Network USA has brilliant war room strategies to solve your IRS problems quickly and in your favor. Like a preferred direct line to the IRS, they know which agents to deal with and who to avoid. It's not all bad news for you because Tax Network USA learned of a special limited-time IRS offer. They're willing to waive $1 billion in penalties if you qualify. So schedule your free confidential consultation to see if you qualify for this limited-time IRS penalty canceling offer. To do so, call 1-800-245-6000. That's 1-800-245-6000. Or visit tnusa.com slash justnews. That's tnusa.com slash justnews. Hello, America, and welcome to a new edition of John Solomon Reports, the podcast from Just the News, where today we've got a very important interview. We're going to leave Washington. Yes, the Hunter Biden, the Supreme Court, going to leave it all behind today. We're going to take you somewhere exotic. Going to go to the Middle East. We're going to talk about the extraordinary peace, the extraordinary uh, partnerships that are now emerging between Israel and its Arab neighbors in a historic uh, Middle East movement. That was uh, fostered by President Trump and his team, Mike Pompeo, Jared Kushner. These are significant times, and it's so easy in the middle of an election, in the middle of a Supreme Court fight, in the middle of scandals like Hunter Biden and Russiagate and all the other things, to forget that uh, other things are happening in Washington, other things are happening in the world that are changing the world. Listen, President Trump's been nominated by two different Europeans for the Nobel Peace Prize, and whether he gets it or not, uh, there is clearly a significant moment in history, uh, something perhaps as dramatic or more dramatic than the famous handshake between uh, Itzhak Rabin and uh, Arafat in 1993 that President Clinton presided over. There is an opportunity for peace, an opportunity for collaboration. It won't come easy. There is going to be terrorism and attacks and naysayers and fighting and Iranian meddling. But it is worth pausing today to say that the advent of a UAE-US-Israel deal, the advent of the Bahrain-Israel-US deal, is the start of something very important. And uh, we've brought on somebody who has a first-hand, first-row seat to this, Michael Oren, the former US ambassador from Israel, Israeli's top diplomat in America. He's here to talk about what's going on in Israel, what's happening, how does this uh, extraordinary breakout of peace, of collaboration, of recognition begin to change the region, and who is next? Is it Oman? Is it Saudi Arabia? Is it Sudan, uh, a country that uh, seems to be high on the list of the Trump administration? We're going to tackle all of that. We're not going to do the monologue today. I wanted you to hear from the one and the only Michael Orr. And we had him on the show a couple of weeks ago to talk about his book. You guys loved him. We've invited him back. This is a must-listen-to show. There's a lot of candor about the struggles and the fears and the worries that still lie ahead. But the extraordinary opportunity of Arab businessmen and Jewish businessmen working together, creating commerce, 
creating bonds of camaraderie, uh, setting aside decades of hatred and tension and coldness for a new era of economic growth for the region, for peace and stability. It's worth pausing at this very moment and appreciating for just a few minutes on this crazy September of 2020 that something good is happening in a world, in a region where often there has been negative headlines only. And while many in the mainstream media, many uh, in the Democratic side of Congress aren't willing to acknowledge the historic achievement here, we do, and we do so by bringing you someone living in Israel right now, living in the center of epicenter of this extraordinary movement, Michael Oren, the former Israeli ambassador to the United States, going to come up right after these commercial breaks. You know what, folks? Stress may be why you can't lose weight. If you've got moderate to high stress like I do, a doctor-formulated weight loss supplement called Lean could be your solution. Chronic stress wreaks havoc on blood sugar, which can cause your body to store excess fat. Stress can also slow your metabolism, which fuels weight gain. And you know all about stress eating and sugar cravings, right? Now the good news. The studied ingredients in Lean have been shown to help maintain healthy blood sugar levels, help optimize metabolism, and keep your appetite under control. Now, if your life is a bit stressful like mine and you want to lose weight, add Lean to your healthy diet and exercise lifestyle. Now get 15% off and free shipping at takelean.com. That's takelean.com and enter the promo code justnews15. That's the promo code justnews15 at takelean.com. One more time, takelean.com. Statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease, and it's not a substitute or alternative for care from a health care provider. All right, folks, welcome back uh, from the commercial break. And as promised, a very special return guest. We had him on just a few weeks ago. He lit up our network. People were talking about him for days. And so we have him coming back. The former Israeli ambassador to the United States, Michael Orrin, Mr. Ambassador. Welcome back to the show. It is a delight to be back, John. Thank you. Well, we are so grateful. You you gave us a great overview of your amazing book, The Night Archer. Folks, if you haven't gotten it, go on to um, Amazon, all the places you can buy books. Uh, the Ambassador's book is fantastic. It's a work of fiction that you cannot put down. It's a compilation of amazing short stories. We talked about it last time. How's the book doing, sir? Doing very well. Yeah. Doing very well in the age of Corona. Well, no one knows how to actually market a book because you can't get on an airplane. But That's you know, right. I'm doing a book tour for my desk. About that. Well, it's a fantastic book and one of my favorites of the year. So congratulations on, on such a such a great piece of literary work. Thank you. Thank you. So you were on last time and we, we talked about the book and then we talked about what might happen next in um, Middle East peace and everything you said came to pass. Everything. Uh, we have had the historic deal with Bahrain now. So UAE and Bahrain, both Arab neighbors of Israel, have signed historic uh, regional changing, probably world changing uh, agreements with Israel. And uh, I wonder if you could tell us how are things in Israel at this moment? How are the peace uh, deals playing out uh, among everyday people in Israel and in the Arab world as well? Well, you know, good news and bad news. Um, let's start with the bad news. Bad news is that we're on lockdown. And we've had a, a, a serious spike in, in Corona here, and we're in general lockdown. Again, actually, we're the first country to go into a second lockdown. Right. So the mood, what can I say, is rather subdued here, um, and, and nobody knows about the future. 
Uh, the good news is that people are intensely excited about these peace agreements. Uh, it changes our entire life. And uh, Israeli businessmen, even on sort of the middle level, not huge businessmen, have gotten requests from their counterparts in the Gulf. Let's make business. There's Amazing. talks about opening up uh, offices here. We're going to office offices there. What, is, what has been fascinating for me is the reaction of the liberal press in the United States, the New York Times, <laughs> the progressives. Yes. I know you're going to enjoy this because I enjoyed it. So, they, of course, they attack this, the agreements. And the, the way they attacked it was very funny. They kept on saying, well, you know, these aren't peace agreements. They're only normalization agreements. I got to say that again. They yes. aren't peace agreements. They're only normalization agreements. As if normalization is 10 rungs down from peace. <laughs> but you understand this is exactly the opposite. It we is. Have had peace agreements with Egypt and Jordan for decades. Right. You know, great agreements, okay? But there's no there's no normalization. Right. There are no Egyptian tourists here, right? There are no Jordanian tourists there. We don't have real business relationships. Um, Anti-Israel feeling in these countries is through the roof. None of the people in the countries actually recognize the legitimate right of a Jewish people to have a homeland here, or even recognize that there is a Jewish people. Right. And along comes... Bahraini's foreign minister and says, no, Jews are part of the Middle East. They belong here. We accept them. You know, I don't know that never said that. No, King that's right. Jordan never said that. So we have normalization. And what, what, the, what the, that liberal press doesn't understand is that normalization is, is 10 times better than peace. Yeah. They got it backwards. Yep. No, there's and no this doubt. And changes everything. It's uh, it's amazing that the media here in America just simply can't give credit where credit's due, even even when it's hard earned. In this case, as it is, and uh, to to the prime minister in Israel, to all the leaders in the Arab countries, and, and to the president here in the United States, this was historic. It changes things. It's a tectonic shift in in the regional dynamics, and um, it is funny. But I, I we do see in our own polling that despite the filter of the media, Americans are extremely excited about this. We had a poll, I think, last. Thursday Thursday uh, at justthenews.com, and uh, 74% of uh, Americans said they were excited by it. Only 10% were opposed to the deals. So the real, the real people in real America get it, even if the media try to to muck it up. <laughs> it was it was pretty pathetic. And the great thing is, Jan, is that this now totally changes the paradigm. If the paradigm before was that cold peace. There's peace between governments, but not between peoples. Right. This now creates a precedent where every peace agreement in the future is going to look like the UAE Bahraini peace and not the Egyptian Jordanian peace. And, you know, what's coming next is the Sudan, right. Oman, maybe Saudi Arabia. But that peace is going to look like this. It's not going to look like those old pieces. Yeah. It's, and. The difference is really when you look at it, when, when, when I've talked to people here, the difference is the other deals were, were maybe potential tolerance deals. And here there's true engagement. There's true uh, benefit to both sides that, that makes peace more uh, lasting because of the fact that they're economic and cultural and political ties all established at once. It, it actually is the way to create a more lasting peace from the experts I've talked to. Well, what, the, what, the, what that liberal media doesn't get was that uh, that peace comes from normalization, but normalization doesn't necessarily come from peace. Great point. And they got it backwards. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and these guys got it right. 
And now the question is whether who, who gets a Nobel Peace Prize here? Oh, my gosh. Is, or will they cancel the prize? I was at The Atlantic, I think, had an article saying, oh, my God, Donald Trump was nominated. We need to cancel the Peace Prize now. <laughs> I mean, um, I, don't, I don't know how you give a Peace Prize to Yasser Arafat. Yeah, you know, that's and, right. And with all due respect to Barack Obama, he got a Peace Prize before he did anything. Yeah, that's <laughs> Someone right. here has actually made peace. And not just made peace, he's made, they've made peace that has changed the entire region. Yeah. And um, I, I think, you know, I'm speaking you know, as an Israeli here, we're all profoundly grateful. Is it? Yeah, it's an amazing time. And, and uh, we'll be looking back at this 10 years from now, seeing, you know, a multitude of benefits beyond what's obvious today. And I think that's what's so exciting here. You mentioned Sudan. So I saw the Sudan, I think it was the foreign minister and the ambassador attending the White House uh, ceremony. I think that was a big signal. Where where do they fit in the calendar next in terms of potential uh, deals with with Israel? Well, I think that a lot is going to that, that decision is going to rest with Washington and right. Sudan is you know an economic morass and they need help. They need to be taken off the the the, the state sponsor of terror list. Right. Uh, so they have things they want from Washington more than they want from us. Uh, we have a tremendous amount to gain from the Sudan. Um, Sudan has always served as the sort of the the route through which uh, Iran and Hezbollah and other terrorist entities got weapons into Gaza. You know, the, the rockets that are fired at us from Gaza are not homemade. They're almost all made Imported. in Iran. Yeah. How do you get into how do you get a rocket into Gaza? You ship it through Sudan over the Egyptian desert. And if Sudan will cut off that route, it'll be a tremendous strategic benefit to us. Wow. That is a big deal. And of course, they want off the um, the designated terror uh, state sponsor terrorism list. So there's a good everybody wins in that deal if they can get the right the right terms for everyone. And that, that and that seems when you look at it, because you've been very good at, at, at knowing exactly how these chips are going to fall. Is that weeks away, months away? What, what do you think is going to happen? I know that uh, Secretary Pompeo has had conversations, I think, as recently as a week ago with Sudan. So it seems like it's a very active area. I wouldn't be surprised in the next couple of weeks you hear, maybe even closer. Something wow. Um, so it may take a little bit longer only because you know, the Saudis have the, 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 the status as being the custodians of the two holiest cities in Islam. Right. It may be more difficult for them to make peace with a non-Muslim country that has its capital in the third holiest site in Islam, in Jerusalem. Right. Uh, and it's more complicated for them. But there are other steps that the Saudis can take. They could they could, could claim uh, non-belligerency, non-belligerency, for example. Right. Uh, they're already letting our flights fly over uh, Saudi Arabia. Amazing. You know, the, the, the Jewish star of, of El Al flies over Saudi Arabia. Um, you know, <laughs> a certain mindset will say these are messianic times. That's pretty amazing. It is amazing. And I think there's also an interesting generational um, dynamic in Saudi Arabia. The younger folks aligned with MBS, the crown, young and energetic, ambitious crown prince, I think have a slightly different, uh, uh, I don't want to say tolerance is the right level, but a different uh, way of looking at the potential of an Israeli-Saudi relationship. And then the king and the er earlier generations obviously come out of a longer, steeped tradition. Um, do you find younger people in the Arab world more open to realizing that all of this hatred, all of this tension that's been there for so long has been silly and nonproductive? Yes, that's definitely true. And, uh, you know, we, th th there's the Internet and the degree to which uh, people in the Middle East can use the Internet freely. Um, we have interaction. Um, they look, they listen to our media, especially our media in Arabic. It's one of the few medias they can actually rely on. Right. And uh, and, and they like Israeli music. <laughs> Strange enough. Isn't that great? Um, Israeli music is heavily influenced by, by Middle Eastern um, inspiration. And sure. they like it. 
Sometimes it's sold in, in Tehran. It's like sold under the counter um, <laughs> you know, in, in brown paper bags. You can How get about the, the that? But, uh, you're no kidding. But, um, you know, yes. And, and, and I think that generation understands that um, Israel, first of all, is not the enemy. Israel is an ally. We are facing a common enemy in the form of Iran and that the axis with Iran, Syria, you know, backed by Russia, that's, uh, that's a common, common threat here. Yeah. And they understand that Israel is the most innovative country in the world and that, that if they're going to move economically, socially, beyond where they are today, Israel's here to help. It's such an important point, and I think, uh, you know, looking at particularly the crown prince in Saudi Arabia, his message with this 2030 initiative has been that the region has been too uh, reliant on just a single economy, the oil economy, and that's not going to last forever, and it's time to diversify. And what better way to diversify than to engage with, you know, really one of the most dynamic, innovative economies in the world, which is Israel. It seems as though the Arab uh, partners have a lot to gain from this relationship, too, as does Israel. Are you seeing, uh, what are the overtures like now from Bahrain and from UAE uh, just since these uh, deals have been um, signed? I imagine there's a lot of crosstalk and excitement and business uh, maneuvering going on. Yeah, I, I can give you a small example. I have a friend who, who, who uh, owns a, a medium-sized organic pesticide company. Wow. Uh, by American terms, it would be small. Right. And he has received several requests from the entrepreneurs in, in the UAE and Bahrain to enter into partnerships. Fascinating. It's amazing. Yeah. Uh, one of my good friends here who uh, does, um, you know, these kind of rented scooters you can get in, in, this, in the States. Right. You know, sort of like these motorbikes. You right. Get. Uh, he, was just in, uh, he was just in the UAE uh, last week and they, they want to enter a partnership with him. He had a very funny experience. I got to tell you that uh, one of the one of the heads of of, of, uh, of transportation in the country says to him, he "says I don't get those American Jews voting for left wing organizations that support the Iran <laughs> nuclear deal. Can you explain that one to me? How about that? <laughs> you know, they, Curiosity. They, they that's very, probably ought to be more uh, widespread in America too. Yeah, they were very, but they actually knew the in the minutia of the politics of the United States, even American Jewish politics. That was fascinating." So, um, yeah, my friend came back very excited. Um, it's just amazing. They want to have a relationship with us. Absolutely. And, and a multifaceted relationship with us. And that, of course, is completely reciprocated on the Israeli side. It's, um, you know, I once got to interview President George W. Bush, and he said mm -hmm. that one of the keys to solving terrorism and the hatred is giving everybody an opportunity to the economic ladder. And so in countries where either subsidies or lack of jobs have been the norm, um, this this opportunity with, with Israel really opens up uh, enormous economic ladder climbing that can be exported and, and partnered across the region. I think long term, the impact on, on terrorism, on radicalization, on, on long-seated hatreds that were based on no real basis other than hatred was passed, in, passed down generation to generation, all those things can crumble in the, in, the, in, the, in the advent of a new economy. And I think that's probably the dynamism that 10 years from now we'll be talking about. Is that, is that the biggest potential payoff here? Yeah, I want to mention one more, and which is also, of course, completely overlooked by that same liberal press, and which is this. The chances for actual peace now with the Palestinians are greater than any time than I can remember. Wow. And I go back. I was an advisor to Yasser Rabin in the sure. early 90s. 
So I've gone through this whole process, and I've never seen a better, more advantageous situation than there is today. Not only is there a peace plan, which is actually connected to reality, because all the other peace plans were completely divorced from reality, but you have a a very good peace plan. Um, And secondly, you have Palestinians who understand, certainly the younger Palestinians understand, that time's not on their side, and the Arab world's not going to wait for them anymore. And they're not going to have a veto power anymore. And they're not going to get incentivized to leave the table because every time they left the table in the past, they got rewarded. That's right. Right? Yeah. And someone's come along and say, okay, that's that's ending. Now you leave the table to get punished. And um, they, I will not be surprised if you're going to see intimations from the Palestinian side that they're willing to come back to the table now. Uh, the big obstacle there is going to be Mahmoud Abbas, the right. president of the Palestinian Authority, who's right. you know 85 years old and a three-pack-a-day guy. Yep. Um, and I don't know how much longer he's going to be in office, but once he goes, there's going to be a new generation that's going to say, hey, there's an opportunity here. And um, the administration in Washington has, has promised $50 billion in investment that's, in the Palestinian economy. That's that amazing. That is a, that's uh, life-changing and certainly country-changing. Yeah, it is remarkable, and I think that um, it's just a matter of time. Do you, have you seen, as you read, and you're an astute reader of just little things happening, what are you seeing going on in the Palestinian Authority? Is there tension between the old guard and the new guard? Are there overtures? Do you think someone's sitting in a back room right now uh, or, or, uh, drafting up the first overture to get the talks back on track? Well, right now there's deer in the headlights. Yeah. They, they, you know, weeks have gone by, and they haven't they have not been able to formulate any any sort of uh, constructive response. response. All yeah. they've done is made a common league with Hamas and other terrorist groups, Islamic Jihad, which is really going to get them far. Right. And I say that, of course, you know, <laughs> Cynic, very cynical. And, yes. Um, that's no response. No. And and I'm sure among Palestinian businessmen, among young people, they're saying, "Hold on." You know, first of all, we're going to be left in the dust here. Yeah. But secondly, you know, left in the dust, but we have a chance to get on the wagon and 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 come out of this with tremendous benefits. And um, you know, I don't know if all your listeners will be happy to hear this, but if you look at the Trump peace plan, it is a two-state peace plan. Right. It's not the state that the Palestinians want. It's certainly right. not the state that you know progressives want. But it is a two states and a chance for the Palestinians to, you know, to have to take control of their own destiny to a very large extent. And enjoy the benefits of sovereignty. It's not sovereignty in the Weberian sense of you know having control over the use of power and right. you know airspace, but it's a lot. It's held up better than it is now. Yeah, and um, you know they have a tremendous amount to gain. When you look out among the Palestinians, who are the new movers and shakers? Who are the next generation? Are there anyone? any particular people or groups that we should be watching in the region as being constructive allies towards towards peace? It's a problem because a lot of the, the leaders are back. Each one has their own backers. Right. So a gentleman named Dahlan is, is backed by, by the UAE. There's others that are backed by Qatar. Um, the One of the most popular leaders in the West Bank is a gentleman named Marwan Barghouti, who is serving five consecutive life sentences for murdering Israelis during the uh, Second Intifada. Right. <laughs> That's not going to get them very no. far because he's not getting out. No. And um, no Israeli government would ever let him out. Of tremendous amount of blood on his hand. Yeah. So they have to understand. So the, what you have to look for is, is the young, particularly Palestinian businessmen, and um, who want to move forward. Um, and um, whether they are in, say, the West Bank, Judea, and Samaria, or in Jordan, or elsewhere, or even in the United States, um, 
you know, they, they understand that this is their moment. And, um, you know, I worked, I worked fairly closely with Palestinians during my time in office, both after, before, after, and, and I, I encountered a lot of mostly technocrats right. who understood that the model for state building is the Israeli model. You, you build from the bottom up, not from the top down. You build the institutions that provide the stable foundations for a state. And, um, you know, I think that those are the people we have to look forward in the future. Yeah, that's that's exactly right. I mean, that's where progress can be made, even as these things at the top level sort themselves out. I think that institution building and maybe also seeing is believing, too. When you see Israel and Bahrain, Israel and UAE and Israel and whoever's going to be next, whether it's Oman or Saudi or el elsewhere, uh, seeing the constructive um, relationships that really haven't been an example or a model uh, available for so long um, could really open the door to to people viewing things in a different light, and I think that's where just you know just seeing the the growth of a business or seeing an Israeli and an Arab businessman partnering and succeeding, I, I think that could have a profound effect on people who've been sitting without any such examples for so long. Do you remember Palestinian Prime Minister? This is now ten years ago, named Fayyad. Sure. Yeah, terrific guy. Yeah. Uh, I used to joke him and say, you know, you're a Palestinian Zionist. <laughs> <laughs> because but he understood because yes. Zionism is that model of building from the bottom up. Right, right. And not from the top down. And um, I said, and, and he's the type of guy, he's, he's, he's educated in the United States, University of Texas, Austin. He understood this. And of course, Mahmoud Abbas forced him out because he's not corrupted. Right. And Mahmoud Abbas is corrupted. <laughs> and he wasn't willing to play that corruption game. But someone like that, so I decided Salam Fayyad could come back and could be a partner for peace. Yeah, that's those are the type of uh, heroes we need to step forward into the um, into the void right now. As you look out at Oman, I think that's an interesting uh, next step. Obviously, it has some challenges internally to to getting to a peace deal. But if Sudan uh, falls into place like people think, and as you predicted and been so aptly right. Um, what what is the key for a deal between Israel and Oman? How does that come together? What are the dynamics and the needs and wants on both sides to to get that deal into place? Well, Oman is a different challenge because unlike uh, Bahrain and the UAE, Oman has a an open relationship with Tehran. Right. So they're not in a completely adversarial relationship. They're not where Qatar is, which right. is more or less an ally. Um, but. And I think Oman is closer in its orientation to Kuwait. Now, Kuwait is interesting because it's a, it's a Sunni Arab country, right. but it has had a close relationship with Oman, and it has a much stronger uh, Islamic extremist element in Kuwait. But I think Kuwait is going to come around too. Wow. That's, um, a big, that's a big dynamic change if that happens. Especially what, what's interesting about Oman is that culturally, in many ways, it's, it's more similar to India. Uh-huh. And uh, it, a lot of Indian influence there. And so it's, it's, it, it, it's part of the Middle East. It's Arabic speaking. Of course, it's a Muslim country. Right. But it has other influences as well. So I think that um, for Oman to come over is in many ways is very, very significant because it has that relationship with Iran. And if you remember, the first stage of the Iran nuclear deal was, was negotiated there. It was. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, because they have that, that they ability. That tie. Um, yeah. It, it would it would be good for us. It'd be good for everybody to have that relationship with Iman. I had good relationship with my Omani uh, counterparts in Washington. I had decent relationship with just about all the Arab representatives, with the exception of Saudi Arabia. <laughs> Isn't that funny? Uh, my counterpart is now the foreign minister, a very fine man, but yep. you know, he was following instructions. Yeah, exactly. Um, but uh, I, I could see a situation where Kuwait would come on board too. 
That's that's fascinating. But more challenging, more challenging, but yep. definitely. Yeah, each deal that progresses get, has its own unique uh, uh, higher bar of challenges. But uh, when you have momentum, yeah. oftentimes those those challenges can go away. Something that people don't remember, John, is that it, you know the Kuwaitis when in 1990, 1991, when Yasser Arafat supported Saddam Hussein's takeover of Kuwait, afterward, uh, Kuwaitis expelled something like 400,000 Palestinians overnight, wow. just expelled them. Many of them showed up here in Israel. Amazing. I, met, I, met I, didn't, I didn't remember that. Expelled from Kuwait. People remember this. Wow. Uh, so there's no great love in Kuwait. That's a great for point. For the Palestinians. Yeah. Yeah, oh, it's no. funny. The Saddam Hussein experience clearly uh, left a, a an indelible mark on Kuwait. Obviously, left it on the whole region. But right. it's, it's mm -hmm. funny how the that Palestinians was... supported him. Supported yeah, the Iraq I forgot nation. that. Yeah, that well, was Arafat. Did. Yep, yeah, that's right. Yep, Yasser Arafat. Right. When you, um, I'm curious what you see <laughs> Iran doing because obviously they have the most to lose in the progress that's being made here with Israel and with these uh, Arab neighbors. Um, what is your take on where Iran is now, both in terms of its leadership and then, of course, very different from its leadership often are the, the masses of people below the mullahs. Uh, what's your take on where things stand there? Well, hold on to your seat. This gets dicey. Um, <laughs> well, forget about the masses. The masses are suppressed. Right. And they've got it, the, the, the Iranians have a, a, a force known as besiege. Right. And besiege are million-man thugs, mm. basically. Uh, and anybody who raises his head up is going to get clobbered or, yeah. or decapitated. Mm. And there's not a lot those masses can do, you know, other right. than protest. And if they get protest too much, they're going to get shot. Right. So that that we know. Um, Iran is going to do um, one of two things. First of all, it's going to wait and see what happens in November. Right. Because you have the head of the Democratic Party right now, the candidate, is saying he's yep. going to renew the Iran nuclear deal. Yep, that undercuts and, all of and this the other vice work. Vice presidential candidate saying she's going to renew the Iran nuclear deal. So you know why not wait? Right. But if the Democrats do not win in November, and the Iranians have to look forward four more years, the Republican Trump administration with sanctions, um, they will then do one of two things: um, they will either um, try to get into a negotiation, right, with um, the the reelected president and, and president Trump says he wants to get into negotiations. Be tough negotiations. Yeah. Um, I think the Iranians will try to say, well, lift some of the sanctions. They're going to have to need some face saving devices there. Right. Um, Cause it'd be too humiliating for them to go into negotiations under complete uh, uh, sanctions. And if that doesn't work, they will turn to war mm. because they, this regime cannot survive another four years of these sanctions. No, no, they're, they're stranglehold they're, already. Yeah. They're strangled already. So they've tried to pick a war through Saudi Arabia. It didn't work. Right. The missile attacks. They've tried to, uh, uh, you know, harass American naval boats in the Straits of Hormuz. That hasn't worked. What's left? Us. What's left? Us. Wow. It's Hezbollah with 130 rockets pointed at us, including at where I'm talking to you now. Right. It's tens of thousands of rockets in the hands of Hamas, Islamic Jihad, Shiite militias in Iraq, and even pro-Iranian militias in Yemen. They can all hit us from various directions and cause us potentially strategic uh, damage, particularly if they have cruise missiles. We have right. no, we have very little defense against them. Iron Dome takes out static missiles. Right. And not, not like missiles that are guided with joysticks. And what the Iranians will try to do is prove to Washington that if you don't play ball with us, we can destabilize the entire Middle East. Right. And that's what they're going to try to do. And that's why we remain 
very, very vigilant. Our forces are still on high alert even tonight uh, against the possible provocations by uh, by Hezbollah and other Iranian proxies. And uh, we have to be prepared for that. And our army has trained to go into the 200 South Lebanese villages under which Hezbollah and Iran have put 130,000 rockets. Wow. And they're going to use all those villagers as human shields. Mm. And uh, very complicated, um, legally even, never mind militarily, legally um, to, to, to neutralize that threat. But that's, that is what's going to happen. And um, wait, we'll see what happens in November. But if it's a Trump victory, um, again, negotiations uh, and or war. Those are uh, pretty stark options and uh, and scary. I said to hold on, <laughs> yeah, it's uh, it's a lot to think about. Is there? Um, I've seen some recent intel reporting suggesting that Iran has accelerated its effort to get at least a single nuclear uh, device bomb uh, built. Uh, where do you think Iran stands in that, and how does that change the art of warfare? I mean, would they deploy such a horrible weapon uh, at the risk of alienating the whole world community? Well, I don't think the world community is going to do very much, uh, yeah. but Israel has stated unequivocally we're not going to let Iran get a nuclear weapon. Right. I think the administration in Washington has, has, has stands four square behind us on that. Yeah. We're not going to let them. And we have we have the ability to defend ourselves against that. I don't think Iran is there. It's making a lot of noise. It, right. it is is enriching a greater amount of, inradi- uh, of, of uranium, right. but it hasn't passed the threshold. Now, here what I mean the threshold. Do you remember, this is now ancient history, 2012, at the UN, Prime Minister Netanyahu drew a picture of a bomb. He did. Yes, he did. Okay. Yes. <laughs> I was there when he drew that picture of the bomb. <laughs> and he drew a red line across that yep. bomb. Where was the red line? The red line was at 250 kilograms, roughly 500 pounds, of uranium enriched to 20%. Now, this gets very technical, but uranium enriched to 20%, from say 3% to 20%, is four-fifths of the way to enriching a bomb to what's called uh, military right. uh, enrichment, which is 92%. In other words, the distance between 20% and 92% is much, much shorter than between 1% and 20%. Of course. But this gets very technical. Okay, but that's, that was the line which Israeli intelligence drew, that once they cross more than 250 kilograms of 20% enrichment, then they can break out and make a bomb in a matter of weeks. Wow. And what Netanyahu was trying to show with the bomb is that what's in the bomb, it's not, you, you can get a fuse, you can get a, yeah. you know, a casing for the bomb. What's important right. is, is the gunpowder. And the gunpowder here is enriched uranium. And that's, that's what you have to look at. And what he's saying is they're not there. If you, be, look, if you look at the news, the Iranians are doing a lot. They're, they're enriching a lot to under right. 20%, but they're not going over 20%. So they have a real technical gap in their capabilities thus far. No, they have the capabilities. They yep. just know where our red line is. I see. Uh, it's, it's about us. It's not right. about them. So there's a natural and, deterrent. Yep. Yeah. And what they're trying to do by giving missiles, these tens and tens of thousands of missiles to all these proxies on our border, they're trying to put a gun to our head. Right. They're trying to create a situation is that, okay, we're going to break out and create a bomb. If Israel tries to stop us, we're going to bombard Israel to dust on every possible front. Wow. Which is why the Israeli military keeps on operating. We don't talk about this. Why we keep on operating in Syria and elsewhere to prevent Iran from getting these missiles, particularly advanced cruise missiles, uh, into the hands of Hezbollah. 
That's what we're doing. Mm. I hope this is making some sense. <laughs> this yeah, is, no, this, this is, is our neighborhood. This is very uh, important stuff, and it, and the future security of of our greatest ally in the region is clearly at stake. When you hear these stakes, right? I mean, these are real. These are these are real uh, possibilities. The, but also for America, it's very important to know, John. Excuse me for interrupting. It, it's you know, Iran is developing intercontinental ballistic missiles, right? And you, you don't need an ICBM to hit Israel. Right. You need an ICBM to hit the United, United States. States. Yeah. So, you know, it, we used to say jokingly with our American co- uh, counterparts that, you know, these scuds for you. Yep. They're not for us. And um, so it, it's not just a threat to Israel. It's a threat to the United States. It's a threat to Western civilization. Such a great point that we often forget because we often try to pretend all this only stays in the region. But that's Ooh. not Iran's ambition at all. <laughs> Coming to a neighborhood near you, really. Yeah. No, that is the scary part. As you look out over the, um, the allies in the region and those who would come to the defense of Israel in the case of an attack, obviously the U.S. is there side by side, no problem. Who else do you think is there to defend uh, Israel when, if and when Iran escalates to, to, to a form of continuous warfare? Well, we won't need anybody to come to our defense. We can defend ourselves, though in the United States, every round of fighting we've had in the last you know 15 years – We've always had to go to the United States for resupply. Right. Uh, we, we spend a lot of ammunition. And under Israel, uh, the United States has prepositioned uh, several billion dollars worth of ammunition. Uh, and we, we ask requests to, get, to access these warehouses, and we get it every time. The only time we didn't get it was uh, in 2014 in the Obama administration and the Gaza operation. Um, the administration thought we were defending ourselves too rigorously and held up uh, the resupply of I crucial ammunition. I remember that, right? I remember that. Yeah. Um, but um, but you know, if, if it ever came, push came to shove, I think you know the UAE has a very good, fine military. They, they actually fight. They've been fighting, you know, in, even in Libya. Right. Um, so, you know, they're, they're tough guys. They have a good air force. Um, so if it came to that push, I don't think it will. Um, Israel's always been able to defend itself by itself against any Middle Eastern threat or any combination of Middle Eastern threats. Yeah. And that is the commitment of the U.S. Congress to us to enable us to do that. That's what's known as QME, uh, Qualitative Military Edge. Right. Yeah, that's been so key to, to the detente in the region. Um, we've talked about Lebanon, uh, and obviously it has a lot of its own internal strife. Is there any diplomatic progress that can be made there? Because if you take Lebanon or you, you neutralize Lebanon as an Iranian um, uh, proxy, uh, you obviously have a, a greater degree of security. Uh, is there an opportunity with you know the terrible tragedy they had and the political unrest and the inability to really have leadership there to, to make some progress there and to put a more pro-U.S., pro-Western, pro-Israel element into government? Hmm. You know, I started my military career by, by participating in the, in the siege of Beirut in 1982. Right. Wow. And that was, pre- that was precisely what, what the goal there was, right. to install a Western, pro-Western, largely Christian government and make peace with Lebanon. Right. Uh, it didn't work. Um, Lebanon is not a country. Yeah. Lebanon is not an independent country. It's under the thumb of Hezbollah. Right. Um, it was a point we had with the Obama administration all the time, stop considering Lebanon, looking at Lebanon as if there's an actual country there. It, right. It's just a branch of Hezbollah. And I think that if, if Hezbollah were not there, did not have the, this stranglehold over the country, I think the country would make peace with us tomorrow. Wow. I think they try to get in line ahead of the Omanis. Um, oh, my God, what they had to benefit from us. I mean, right. we, we extended a hand to them to help them with the with – the, uh, with the, the casualties from that horrible blast, yeah. which I, by the way, am convinced that Hezbollah was deeply involved with that as well. Wow. Uh, 
Oh, it's it's like painfully obvious. Yeah, they yeah. they found they found hidden, you know, warehouses from his ball from his bala in in Germany and Great Britain that had the same stuff in it. Wow, nitrate. <laughs> you know, they use this. I yep. think that the stuff in the the the, the three thousand tons of it in 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 Beirut was was earmarked for Haifa. Yeah, it's one of the but, easiest um, explosives. They did a big big make. explosion in the South Lebanon tonight, by the way. Yeah, no, we saw that in the breaking explosion. headlines. Yeah. Do you yeah. think that the actual explosion was set off, or was it was it actually an accident because they are moving it and using it as a strategic terrorism resource? I don't know. Yeah. I, I know for a fact we were not involved in it. Right. Um, Many ways it could be set off, and, this, and there have been explosions of this material in the past. Right. Um, but I, I just, I just have. If you just connect the dots, there's no way that Hezbollah did not know about this. Right. And no, Hezbollah was not counting on it. Right. As a a source of of explosive materials of munitions. Yeah. Uh, for war with Israel. Sort well, of that, a that stuff was, it was a depot it was of convenience. Yeah. Wow, that's a pretty pretty. Um, and Shane, you, know, we, you know, we you know we took care of thousands of of uh, casualties from the Syrian civil war, and they it's not well known in the world, but they came across our border. We brought them to our hospitals. Um, we didn't take pictures of them. We didn't take their names. We sent them back. Wow. We didn't even ask them what militias they they came right. from. At one point, when I was in the Knesset, I got a complaint from uh, Israeli Arabs in the north that uh, Syrian casualties were taking up all the good hospital beds. Mm. You can't make this stuff up. Wow! And, uh, There's not something you'd expect to hear every day. Yeah. And and um, you know we could have done the same thing for the Lebanese. We really yeah. could have done that. Yeah. Um, such a shame. Such a such a tragedy. And the Lebanese should be looking at his bullet saying, "You did this." Yeah. Wouldn't yeah. let the Israelis help us. It'd be interesting to know what the populace thinks versus its very defunct uh, and uh, dysfunctional uh, government. But um, it it is an opportunity that I think. You look at it and you say, if you could just do it, it, it changes the dynamic. But the the just do it part seems to be very hard with everything that we we know about the uh, the state of Lebanon today. Well, Mr. Ambassador, I can't thank you enough. I kept you way over, but our our listeners just oh, love you. Uh, uh, before we go, how how can folks get a copy of your amazing book, The Night Archer? So, uh, The Night Archer and other stories is available on Amazon, Apple, wherever you get books is available, um, and it's in audio auto form, digital form. Um, for your Kindle and uh, and hardback also. Remember those things called books. They, Absolutely, they we still have. Well. I have one on my bedstand right now. Absolutely, <laughs> and it's, uh, it's fifty-one short stories that are completely different. Uh, unlike, I think it's completely unique among short story collections. Everyone's different genre, different point of view. There's mystery and murder and history and, and love and faith. By yep. the way, yeah, there's a lot of faith in there. Yes, faith. even an and, alien or two. Uh, yes. True. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, one of my favorite stories about about the pastor in a church on the Sunday. Yes. So, um, so, and I think you know, if you're home with Corona and you have watched everything there is to watch on Netflix, this is the book for you. So it's a tremendous. <laughs> it'll take you to places you can't imagine. It's a tremendous adventure. It's a, it's the, the literary quality is beyond uh, belief. It's such a gr- well written set of stories, but each one leaves you wondering. What was the message? What's my takeaway? What's the, whether it's a spiritual message or a humanity message, um, it, it is an amazing collection. I, I am in awe of your writing, and uh, it's it's definitely one of my favorite books of 2020. Folks, if you haven't had the chance, uh, you're missing out on something big here. Get The Night Archer. Go on to Amazon. Go anywhere books are sold. 
it's a must read if you're uh, if you're looking to break the monotony of the COVID pandemic. This is the ultimate cure. <laughs> you can't see me blush, but I'm blushing. Thank oh you very well, much. really, it, it is a wonderful book. I, I really say that with uh, with all honesty. It was uh, I couldn't put it down until I finished. It took me a couple nights, and uh, but once you get in, you just want that next story, and that that's a very special piece of literary work when when you leave readers with that uh, that impulse. Thank you. Thank you very much. Well, we're a joy to be with you. You too, sir. We're so excited. We were about to launch a television division. We announced that today. So we don't want you to be a stranger. Maybe we'll be able to pipe you into our TV network in the next few weeks as just the news expands. So I'm not leaving my desk. I'm right here. All right. Well, we know how to find you now. (laughs) Well, folks, you've been listening to the amazing, the one and only Michael Lauren, the former Israeli ambassador to the United States, an amazing author and somebody who has given us incredible insights on what happens next in the Middle East. So we want to thank you, sir. Thank you. Be well, everyone. We will. All right, folks, we're going to come back and wrap things up in a few seconds. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. That was quite the interview. Michael is such an extraordinary uh, talent. Ambassador Oren doesn't hold back. He gives you straight talk. He gives you the ups, the downs. He can handicap. He sticks to facts. He understands the region well. It's leverage points, it's failures, it's strengths. And I think today you got a better sense of why so many people in the State Department, so many people in the global community have reason for optimism in the Middle East, the place where often all we've had are headlines of horror and tears, bloodshed and pain. But there is a new horizon visible in the Middle East. It is because of America's efforts to get involved, but also not to dictate, to let the regional partners like UAE and um, uh, Bahrain and Sudan and Saudi Arabia, Oman, whoever else is going to come to the table, to make their own deals in the framework of the opportunity that the Trump administration laid out, that Jared Kushner and Mike Pompeo, the Secretary of State, fostered. But these are momentous times, no matter who wins the election in November, whether it's Joe Biden or President Trump, uh, this movement will move on. It will continue. It will persist. Short, uh, if Biden wins, there may be a resumption of the Iranian nuclear deal. If Trump wins, the Iranians may be tempted to meddle. But the dynamic between the Gulf states, the Arab neighbors of Israel and Israel, are now on a new horizon, a new plane, a new paradigm. And that's good for the world. That's good for America. And As we go to bed tonight, as we 
go to our dinner tables or to the television set tonight. Remember, something good is happening halfway across the world in that region that we've so often looked for bad news. There's good news. That's it for me. It's John Solomon and John Solomon Reports coming to you live from Just the News in Washington, D.C. If you get a chance, check out our site. Lots of big news breaking. We'll uh, have new additions next week. We had some great guests this week. We hope you enjoyed them. We certainly got a chance to break some big news with Ron Johnson and the Senate report on Hunter Biden and the Biden family corruption. But uh, there's so much more. And next week, a new week, we have a first presidential debate. So much history on the horizon. Get ready. Buckle up. We'll be back early next week with a new round of John Solomon Reports. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.